Greetings, listeners and learners. You are now tuned in to the complexion of teaching and learning, a podcast docu-series in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional experiences of educators of color. I am your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English language art specialist for Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. In this episode, we will continue exploring the oppression, resilience, and contributions of Black, Asian, and Native American educators during a period of American segregation and expansion. Throughout the episode, we will be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias and its role in our work and learning. I hope that the reflections in this episode and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary, and courageous conversations that you can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. If you're just tuning in, I encourage you to listen to the previous episodes which explore the experiences of educators of color before, during, and right after chattel slavery, leading into the Jim Crow era. Last episode, we explored the preservation and persecution of teaching and learning norms from Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian peoples from the mid-19th century leading into the 20th, and explored the impact it has had on education today. America's ability to segregate and colonize through policies, practices, and habits of racialized minds strengthened as it entered the 20th century. Of course, this wasn't without forms of resistance from educators and communities of color. This resistance would take place through A, instruction that would affirm student identity, and B, political persistence. In the process, there was conflict, convergence, and creativity amongst different communities of color. What will this era reveal about how we choose to do education in our systems and classrooms today? Last episode, we left off talking to professor and Rethinking Schools magazine editor Wayne Ao, and we spoke about the profound racism Chinese and Japanese folks experienced as they immigrated to the United States. But there was educational resistance in the establishment of Chinese and Japanese language schools, preserving linguistics and identity, all while having discourse around how to succeed in the game called America, without forsaking homeland ways of being, thinking, teaching, and learning. Even during American discrimination, Japan's international influence would empower Japanese Americans to push for more education rights and self-determination during the early 20th century. Professor Al breaks it down. The Japanese Americans had expansive networks of, of, um, of Japanese language schools. Um, and, and there were actually like annual meetings of the teachers of those schools to get together and talk about the curriculum and really process what did they want to do in terms of these schools and how do they want to position themselves against sort of mainstream, uh, you know, quote unquote American politics. Um, cause there was also, you know, obviously Japan was a rising imperial power and there's all these international tensions that started to build. And then there was a big fight amongst the Japanese um, American teachers and the Japanese teachers here in the U.S. Like, how are we going to position these schools relative to the the rising yellow peril? Right? Or should we be teaching Americanization, or should we be doing language maintenance, or can we do both um, without you know without getting run out of town? In the case of these Japanese school networks, teachers formed professional learning communities, which were centered on content in a way that was informed by the academic cultural and sociopolitical needs of the community their schools served. Today, 
we would say that these professional learning communities took a quote-unquote wraparound services approach, which thoughtfully considered the whole student, including their family and community, with academic success occurring as a result. This approach is now in education policy and reform conversations, but it was done and committed to by educators of color who were segregated in this system first. How elusive would educational equity be if planning and professional learning in our systems consistently operated like this today? This community-centered practice may not be common now, but it certainly wasn't uncommon for marginalized people of color during the early 20th century in the United States, where legal segregation, implied segregation, and colonial expansion were the order of the day. As inequalities abounded, sound professional practice and philosophy in education were often weapons of choice. I got the opportunity to talk with New York Times journalist and author of the book Teacher Wars, a history of America's most embattled profession, Dana Goldstein. In her book and in our conversation, she shares how the idea of black education was so repudiated that it was used as racist fuel to forge policies that would add to the full formation of Jim Crow. I think uh, one of the things that really struck me doing the research for the book was the extent to which opposition to educating black children was really at the very heart of so many of the other Jim Crow policies that we usually think of first. For example, uh, preventing black adults from voting. It, it's notable that it was only after many of the states put in, um, you know, voting restrictions for black voters that they then amended their state laws to fund schools. And to enshrine segregation and lower funding of black schools and lower pay for black teachers. Because in the years right after the Civil War, uh, during Reconstruction, there was more money for black schools and more money to pay black teachers. So the desire to tamp down on that growing educational equality was a main driver of Jim Crow. And the South was the very last region of the United States to establish common schools. And, you know, many historians have pointed um, to slavery and the legacy of slavery as the reason why. I mean, many Southern politicians, did they, they repeatedly um, sort of made it clear that they would rather not have public education if it would mean that they would have to educate black children equally. And so they repeatedly avoid creating any kind of system that would necessitate educating black children. And so it is only, you know, in the 1960s that there's really a national attempt to start addressing this history. But it is... Um, it's very it's a very troubling part of American educational history. Again, power through policy and prejudice was often responded to with philosophy and instructional practice. Dana breaks down some of the educational philosophers born out of this era, noting their critical differences and similarities. So I think the, the main history that a lot of us are introduced to is that Booker T. Washington was more a fan of vocational education for um, African Americans coming out of slavery and for their children and grandchildren, while WBT Du Bois was more focused on the talent and tents, so uplifting um, the most able members of the community into a liberal arts 
education and through college and beyond. What I focused on in my book was, you know, not just showing the differences between them, which were very important, but also some of the ways in which they were similar. Uh, both men really believed that the teacher was the central figure to the black community during the Jim Crow years and emphasized just how important it was for more privileged African Americans to serve the community by going out to teach. So they both kind of encouraged young black teachers to have this zeal toward the work and um, be driven by passion, even to the point sometimes of not fighting um, so hard or complaining so much about low pay. And I contrast um, them as sort of movement leaders and intellectual leaders with someone like Anna Julia Cooper, who was a single woman, African-American as well, but she really needed to earn a living <laughs> through the classroom, through teaching. And so while she was, you know, very closely associated with the ideas of WB. Du Bois in terms of really believing in the college preparatory curriculum for black students, she fought. She fought for more money for educators and for female teachers because that was just important to her. That was how she earned her keep. So I really wanted to get into um, some of the debates um, among these different educators and different thinkers. But um, the main one was certainly about vocationalism versus the liberal arts. And this extended beyond the black community to also how working-class white immigrant children were treated. And a lot of the debates that happened in the early 20th century actually presaged uh, what the larger country would go on to debate throughout the 20th century. Um, the black community, in some ways, was talking about this first. I also got to speak with Martin L. Boston, professor at UC San Diego, who added to this list of influential education philosophers, including my favorite educator of all time, Carter G. Woodson. Carter G. Woodson is, you know, uh, kind of like uh, one of the most important kind of historians, especially in the early 20th century. Um, I mean, he starts uh, Negro History Week and eventually becomes Black History Month that we still kind of celebrate today. So he was very much kind of tied to, like, uh, affirming um, black people's importance both in the moment and in history. Um, so I think in many ways he's, he's vital um, to that. I mean, he's very much in conversation with W.B. Du Bois at the time. Um, so I think, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's also a very important figure to think about. Along with like people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who starts um, Bethune Cookley uh, University um, in Florida, who was a, a lifelong teacher, who was also thinking about ways to um, empower people through education, because um, miseducation is the understanding that do of devaluation of of black people, of black culture, of black identity. So having these places where Black people come and and learn the opposite of that. That was um, counter to the narrative that um, black people, formerly enslaved people, had been who had made it, who had been told that this is absolute knowledge that they have no history. That this was kind of a very important moment for black people. I mean, this is where we start seeing things like um, the Harlem Renaissance kind of burgeoning out of such discourse and such education, where people are starting to really think about what the 
black modern subjects post-slavery is in the United States. And as we know, um, it's done incredible things, um, both ideas politically, um, but then also through the arts and um, philosophy and so on and so forth, right? So um, without people like Bethune, um, Booker Washington, um, Carter G. Woodson, so on and so forth, I mean, that is a hard place to get. All of these philosophers are important to me and United States history, but Woodson has always stuck out to me. Not necessarily because he was the father of Black History Month, but because he was aware of the psychological deprogramming component required for progressive and liberatory education. In his classic book, The Miseducation of the Negro, he says, quote, When you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status, for he will seek it himself. End quote. He also said that, quote, there would be no lynching if it did not start in the classroom, end quote. This included classrooms with black educators. The 2018 Opportunity Myth Report done by the New Teacher Project noted that in classrooms with at least 75% black students or 75% Latinx students, only 66% of educators of color who shared their students' ethnicity had higher standards. While it is almost double what white teachers scored, why did we only get a D in having high expectations for students who share the same racial and ethnic backgrounds? Is the internalized racism Woodson explored in miseducation a contributing factor? Throughout the early 20th century, these worldviews and thoughts about education were still reflected in deep practice, despite the gross underfunding of schools and teachers. Professor Vanessa Siddle Walker, retired president of the American Education Research Association and author of the book, The Lost Education of Horace Tate, spoke to me about what this looked like at the height of Jim Crow. Because school boards fail to give black schools the materials, facilities, equality, buildings that they deserved as American citizens, because school boards fail to provide what it was supposed to provide for black schools, the assumption then is that the schools just didn't do anything. In other words, we believed that because school boards did not want black children to do or be anything or be educated, we assumed that the schools became only what the school boards intended. So if they don't give us textbooks, right, we just don't know anything. <laughs> if they try to constrain uh, our teachers and principals, then we just weren't taught anything. And so what we missed is the resilience of a people. That within the oppression, the push down against the people, there's a simultaneous action of resilience that's pushing up against that repression. And so what we see within the segregated schools in the South is a counter story. It doesn't mean that the story of inequality is not a correct story. It just means it's not the only story, that there's more to the story than the inequality. And the part that I write about 
captures the way in which a people are resilient against inequality in the South and, and, and the structures and mechanisms and norms that they create for black children in the midst of oppression. No, what, what are those things? I mean, that would be the logical question, right? What are the things that they create? And we see this over time and geography. They're doing very similar things. And what they're doing is trying to figure out how to center the needs of the black child to reconstruct in the black school these negative messages that the children would get in the larger society about who they are, what they could be and, and achieve, and within the school, send a counter-message to the children about who they are and what they can be and achieve. And they do this in very particular ways. And we see this not just in my work, but in the work of other scholars who've written about segregated schools as well. You see similar kinds of threads for how they create these schools for children. One is what I call the institutional and interpersonal caring. In other words, they create these school climates where children are taught to believe that they can achieve, that they can reach their highest potential, right? And you see them doing this in ways that are interpersonal, speaking, a teacher speaking directly to a child, for example, about, oh, yeah, you can go to school. Oh, yeah, you can do this. Oh, the best equipment may be across the way at that white school. But the best minds are right here in this school, right? And you hear the children talk about it, and we believed it, right? We believed what they told us. That's that interpersonal caring, right, the ways in which teachers and principals function directly with children. But they also create in these schools what I call institutional caring, meaning they create school structures that are designed to send the same messages about the child's value, uh, the ways in which you should not feel constrained because of what the larger society says about who you are. They create all kinds of forms of, of assemblies and clubs and activities and school policies that give children opportunities to shine and perform. And so this whole care ethic is a big deal uh, in these schools, and that often is what black graduates of the schools will most remember and talk about. But we also see strong professional leadership. Black teachers did not know they were not uh, professionals until they integrated. Before that, they talked about themselves as professionals. They held each other to the standard of professionalism. They would reprove each other by saying, that is not professional, right? So as professionals, they took on the belief that we can teach we can teach the children, right? We we know how to teach. We can make sure here's here's something that uh sometimes the kind of language some of them would say. Um a child who's learned a language has demonstrated his ability to learn. Right? If you can speak whatever the people are speaking in your home, even if they're using split verbs and infinitives and all kinds of things, if you learn to imitate that that means there's nothing wrong with your brain. You have the capacity to learn. And these teachers would say, if a child has learned a language, there's nothing wrong with their brain. They can learn. And if they can learn, we should be able to teach them this sense of responsibility, right, for education. So you see them on cutting-edge ideas with regard to how we should move children forward. Uh, they read. They work in professional development groups. 
They take responsibility for teaching the children. So you see a strong kind of professional norm among these black educators. Remember that black teachers, do, <laughs> black teachers in some places in the South were better educated and had more years in the profession than white teachers at the point of integration. Uh, say what? Part of it is because they have a norm particularly as the 40s, of wanting to learn and know. I mean, it's very much a part of their professional network to learn as much as you can. But remember also that states pay black teachers to go out of state to get master's degrees. So we don't want you, please do not come to Emory or UGA or Georgia Tech. Don't, please, don't come here. And so the state of Georgia, like other southern states, set aside a special fund to allow black teachers to go to northern universities to get their master's degrees, right? Because at this point, right, in the litigation, you have to provide opportunities for all your, your citizens, and we don't want you here. So we pay money to make sure you can go someplace else and you can leave us alone. The result then is that black educators at Teachers College, they at Michigan, they at Harvard, they at all, any number of places getting these master's degrees. So when you start to see on the ground in Georgia language that sounds like John Dewey, they know John Dewey, right? I mean, they've been under that influence because they've been in these places that have cutting edge educational ideas. And you see them appropriate these ideas into the South, often using the language that they learned in graduate school, but reconstructing it to make it fit the needs for black children in the South. So they take Dewey beyond where Dewey took himself, but it works in the setting in the South because now they can apply these ideas and they can, you know, say to their superintendent, you know, as John Dewey said, you know, we should have community-based schooling or, or whatever the norms might be. So you've got a very professional group of educators, increasingly so as the decades continue in the 40s and 50s and, and 60s, and they are operating with a deep desire to grant to black children the same opportunities that are available for white children, even within this restrained system. You see strong uh, professional leadership, right? Principals who aren't just trying to take care of buses or whatever the mechanics are of running the school. They did have to do those things, but they are also in charge of professional development in their schools. And, and, and you see faculty meetings where the principal is pushing teachers into study groups and how do we think about, you know, how are we going to teach the new math, right, or whatever the norm might be at a particular time. And then, of course, there's strong black parental involvement. Black parents are there to support black education. They do it financially to make up for the difference in what the school board is giving and what they believe the children need. And so they're buying playground equipment or curtains for the stage or a piano or whatever the needs might be. You see black parents stepping up to to provide those kinds of resources. But it's not just 
financial, you also see black parents stepping up as advocates, working quietly behind the system with um, working invisibly, I guess is a better way to say it, with the principal to learn what the needs are and the parents go to the school board to petition, to make requests for needs for the school. These parents are the advocates, typically farmers or business owners, anybody whose livelihood is independent of um, a person who's not able to face so much reprisal from white wrath when they find out what they're doing, right? So a farmer can do that or a small business owner can do that. Um, And so you see these people stepping forward as advocates. It's a funny kind of symbiotic reciprocity, to use uh, Russell Irvine's words. Uh, It's a funny kind of symbiotic reciprocity that's happening in this moment because, in effect, the parents learn how to parent the school, right? They give to the school what the teachers and principal don't have. They parent the school. But But the teachers and principal parent the children because they help the children to have a vision of where they can go the parents want them to go, but they don't know how to actually get them there. And that's why you see the, the, the kids who went to these schools say things like, our, our teachers were mother-like, father-like, our principal was like a father, right? They often use this familial language to describe teachers and principals. And, and I think it's because of this relationship that we see. I mean, what's happening in these schools Children are being taught to believe that they can achieve, that they can be full citizens in American democracy. These children are being taught to participate in a world that does not yet exist. Really, they couldn't reach their highest potential, right? (laughs) Not, Not in 1940, right? But they are preparing them for the world that would be. So we have parents integrating the school, teachers integrating the community, studied and practiced educators who integrate their academic learnings into their traditional ways of teaching and learning, educators who don't subscribe to the conspiracy of politeness amongst each other when they encounter subpar instruction, and teachers providing engaging identity-affirming instruction. These are not the stories about this time period, nor the best practices that I was told at any point of my education or training as a teacher. Professional excellence and dedication shown by these educators were totally absent in the narrative I was given. Why are we taught about the oppression of this time period, but not the professional excellence, the dedication, or the resistance? And then why is it that we aren't taught about some ethnic groups at all after a certain time period? For example, during the turn of the century, Native Americans were still experiencing dislocation, being forced to attend boarding schools, physically dislocating a group whose ways of knowing and learning can be deeply connected to their own land. In addition to experiencing a physical genocide since settler colonialism began, they also had to confront a curricular genocide in these boarding schools. I had the opportunity to speak with Dene Professor and Senior Director of the Indigenous Teacher Education Project, Valerie Shirley, and she illustrates the educational cost of this type of subjugation. I am Dene from Ganado, Arizona. I grew up there, I attended school there, and I was also an elementary school teacher in that area. 
So the history of boarding schools tells a story of assimilation, and it has been through the policies and practices of erase and replace, meaning erase Native identities and cultural aspects and replace with um, English and European cultural identity and erase Native languages and replace with the English language, erase uh, Native um, traditional cultures and replace with religion, Christianity. And so I think this has really had an impact because the boarding schools had removed children from their families and from their homes and their place within their homelands and the knowledge that exists within that place and had really transformed them. And so through this assimilation process and corporal punishment and religion. And so that has left a huge impact within our communities. During this time period, the boarding schools began to die down partially a product of the progressive education movement in the 1920s, a federal investigation called the Merriam Report sharply criticized the off-reservation schools and called for, quote, locally relevant education that engaged the, quote, individual abilities, interests, and needs of Native Americans. For Native Americans, this meant their schools would remain segregated and they would still be discouraged from higher education, but can now go past eighth grade and they could receive unprecedented federally funded Native American history curricula known as Native lore and bilingual literature for dual language instruction called Indian Life Readers. Sounds like today's progressive and liberatory ed talk, right? However, according to K. Chanina Lomawima's book To Remain an Indian, Lessons in Democracy from a Century of Native American Education, these steps were certainly milestones, but still reeked of assimilationist propaganda and parent shaming. Not that different from the culture of poverty arguments that some educators, politicians, and cultural critics make today. According to Loma Wyma, the Indian lore curricula beautifully focused on tribal customs, but sneakily avoided indigenous governance norms and treaties. The Indian life readers consistently reflected the surface culture of indigenous tribes, names, and places, but excluded the deeper culture of indigenous linguistics, story structures, and values, often focusing on assimilating into white society's expectations. In other words, indigenous culture and knowledge was used as a temporary scaffold into white supremacy, not as a way of teaching and learning worth expanding in the service of navigating and eliminating white supremacy. Despite these dynamics, there were pioneering and impactful indigenous teacher leaders and philosophers like Esther Burnett Horn, Ruth Muskrat Bronson, Ella Deloria, Elizabeth Q. White, and Hartman Lomawima. They would leverage this supposedly progressive moment to expose their students to truly progressive education norms like taking pride in one's work, having academically rich discourse, interrogating textbook bias, encouraging students to, quote, be receptive to new ideas, all while teaching to their knowledge base. What the government provided halfway, they took all the way, which is an all too common experience of teachers who seek to provide equitable education. 
These educators from African-American, indigenous, and Asian-American backgrounds further confirm a personal truth that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, we have to know three things. One, we have to know that we are part of an educational system that upholds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, we have to know that being in this system means that we are participants in it and are therefore accountable for our contributions. And most importantly, three, using our systemic awareness coupled with a strong sense of self, students, content, and instruction will not only allow us to be non-complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, but necessary. I would like to close this portion of the episode by honoring the lives of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the many others who have died as a result of 21st century lynchings. Across the nation, people have taken this fight for racial justice to the streets, to social media, to police precincts, and to Congress and local government offices. Now it's time to take this fight to our schools, our district central offices, our state departments of education, our curricula, and our instruction. As shared earlier, Carter G. Woodson noted that there would be no lynching if it did not start in the classroom, which can breed both the lynched and the lyncher. So for my white and non-white teachers who teach predominantly white children who may struggle to find the relevance this has with their classrooms and student demographic, I offer this question. How can your instruction deter and or eliminate the creation of 21st century lynchers like Derek Chauvin, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankison, and Miles Mosgrove? We will have a moment of silence for the victims of their racial violence, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and for all those who have lost their lives in painfully similar ways. Thank you, and may our country do the necessary learning so we can have the necessary justice. For part three of this episode, we'll continue exploring the saga of educators of color during the Jim Crow era, international expansion into other Latinx and Asian territories, and the events and cases that lead into the landmark Brown versus Board court decision. In between now and the next episode, we invite you to open your communities up to discuss this history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. How does this history make you rethink our current practices as educators? Where are the lines between legal segregation and cultural unification amongst teachers of color? How does this history make you rethink how you interact with students of color or otherwise? And what similarities does our current education system have with the ones described in this episode? How is it different? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank Dana Goldstein and Professors Wayne Al, Vanessa Siddle-Walker, Martin L. Boston, and Valerie Shirley for sharing their time, wisdom, and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically, intergenerationally, and communally. Until the next episode, I wish you all fair learning journeys. Peace and progress. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by Unbounded, where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. For more about our work, please visit unbounded.org for resources such as our free, high-quality curriculum and the Bias Toolkit, a three-part guide for facilitating conversations about race, bias, and privilege among teachers and leaders. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. To remain in Indian, Lessons in Democracy from a Century of Native American Education by K. Chinina Lomawaima and Teresa L. McCarty. Teacher Wars, a History of America's Most Embattled Profession by Dana Goldstein. The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. The Lost Education of Horace Tate by Vanessa Siddle Walker and Reclaiming Multicultural Roots of U.S. Curriculum by Wayne Au, Anthony Brown, and Dolores Calderon. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning. Welcome to the B-Side Conversation of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, where we have focused conversations with one educator of color to discuss both their unique and common experiences, and also explore their navigation of and contributions to this American education space. Our B-Side Conversation guest today is none other than former teacher, former principal, current speaker, current writer, and current president and CEO of Unbounded Learning, Miss Lacey Robinson. What's going on, Miss Lacey? Oh, wait, we already talked about saying miss and ma'am. My bad. <laughs> That's right. Don't miss ma'am me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's a cultural thing, as we've talked it about. It is. Right? Like, I, I don't feel that I've earned ma'am yet. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite at my mother's status, but I'm getting there. <laughs> I, I hear you. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a bit about you. Um, you, before you were working for Unbounded, um, mm-hmm. you were a school leader. Can you remind me where again? Mm-hmm. Was it in New York? It was in New York and somewhere else, correct? Um, no, well, I was a school leader in Maryland. That's right. My bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and then I held various positions, um, from the school. So I say from the schoolhouse to the central office, um, I held different positions. My most to me proud position was being, um, a second grade, first grade, and then fifth grade and pre-K teacher. Oh, wow. Yeah. All the grades I couldn't do, except for maybe fifth grade. <laughs> like it's it's just it's a whole other type of energy that is required. People would always say like, "How do you do middle school?" Like, I don't know how you do elementary school because it's just a lot. It, it it takes a special kind of thinker in person to be able to uh, stay fully engaged in, in in that practice. How how did being a teacher, um, and maybe you know maybe not being Title One, and then you mentioned other places and spaces where you did work, uh you know, with Title I schools and with black and brown uh, kids. How did that inform um, your showing up as a leader when you did end up having to lead schools um, that were majority students of color? I mean, it's the very essence of that is what I draw down even now as CEO of this organization. Like, first of all, I just think there aren't, there are not many other professions 
where you have the privilege and the honor of supporting, guiding, leading in some respect, individuals growth as a human being. Like I just, I don't know too many other professions where, um, you know, people have flashbacks when they get older, you know, Mm -hmm. you say second or third grade to folks and immediately the teacher's face pops into their head or an incident that happened in school pops into their head. So I carry those years experience uh, being a classroom teacher with me everywhere I went. I certainly carried it with me when I became a middle school turnaround principal. Um, the very essence of being a elementary school teacher that, that whose, um, let me say, specialty, because whether teachers realize it or not, you gravitate towards one subject more than another. Right. And, and it literally becomes your specialty, almost like the way physicians morph themselves into specialists. Um, and so my specialty was ELA, reading, um, the teaching of fluency, the teaching of reading. Um, and so I carried that with me as a middle school turnaround principal. Um, so Where did that I, come from? Where did that value, why, why did that leaning happen? Why, did, why didn't you lean into math or why didn't you lean into science? Like, why did you lean into literacy skills and practices? Yeah, it, I think it has a lot to do with my own um, acclimation to reading as a child. Um, you know, my mother jokes now, believe it or not, as a little girl, I, I did not talk a lot. Um, and it, it worried my family members and my mother that I wasn't as verbal. Um, and, and so I started uh, kindergarten. And um, while I enjoyed school, um, I had a bit of a struggle learning how to read. And what I now understand is <clears throat> that struggle uh, had a lot to do with phonics was big at the time, um, but I don't know if there was enough emphasis on the phonics. Uh, my mother talks a lot about me struggling with memorizing the alphabet, and she would oftentimes walk into my room um, as a kindergarten while I was asleep, and she would hear me reciting the alphabet in my sleep. Mm. Um, so by the time I got to first grade, yeah, by the time <laughs> I got to first grade, my mother knew that there was a struggle that I was having with reading, influencing, recognizing letters. Um, I trans transposed letters for a long time, uh, to the point where she wondered whether or not I was dyslexic. Um, turns out I wasn't, I just, you know, as I now know it's the stage that all students go through, but so much so that by the time I ended first grade, we were, I was in a predominantly white school. I mean, predominantly white, like I think my sister, myself, and one other family out of the entire elementary school that I know had to have well over five, 600 kids, including no other employees. So no cafeteria workers, forget the teachers, no janitors, no one else in that building was people of color, except for us and this other family. Uh, And my mother worried that they were passing me on to second grade without having the adequate reading tools. And Mm. so she forced them to hold me back because I struggled with word recognition and fluency. So it's weird. I had a tutor who worked 
I could still like, I could still smell her perfume who worked just long hours with me after school. And the most thing I remember is that she was an encourager. So she celebrated with me when I discovered new words and she encouraged me to read. And literally from that moment on, when I began to get the sense that I was a reader and I was encouraged, I fell in love with books. Like I devoured them. I mean, like devoured. Uh, when I got punished, I didn't get sat in the corner. I didn't get told I couldn't go out my friends. My mom took my books out of my room and you would have thought she mm. disassembled all my Barbies. Like you would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> he talks about it to this day. She's like, oh, if, if I wanted to punish Lace, I would just take her books out of her room. It devastated her. Um, and so that just carried me on. I even went as far as got a job at the local library in fifth grade. And I worked that job until I graduated out of high school. Just so I could shelve books mm. and read them. So that explains a lot <laughs> why you would be have that leaning. That's intense. Uh, you know, in this episode, um, the A side of this, right? And the, the, there's a history. It just, everything you were saying reminded me of this history of like, was happening during segregation where I guess like the black teachers that were teaching black kids because there was no integration right um there was a, a that Dana Goldstein talked about in her book she gets you know she's in, in the in the episode she talks about in her book how like in those segregated schools like phonics instruction was emphasized mm-hmm. which which always kind of captive captivated me because as a person who didn't get it I also had to deal with literacy challenges that may have been avoided had I actually got it. So it's, it, um, it's wonderful to hear that you got it and were supported um, by, by your family and by, you know, an educator um, who celebrated with you and who pushed you, who was a warm demander, back to Mara Collins, right, um, and made you into a leader that valued uh, literacy. What, what did that mean for you as a Black woman? who was now leading and had the uh, leaning for literacy in a school filled with black and brown kids? Uh, I was devastated. I'll never forget. Um, so I, I, I go through this training program as a principal. Um, I spent a year as a resident principal in an elementary school that actually fed into my middle school. And I worked really hard that year in my residency um, to my dismay with the teachers of color who were not up on the latest reading language art strategies. And at the time, I say the latest, we now know with the science of reading that those strategies were not the most um, efficient when it came to building fluency skills. But I remember going into the school and none of the teachers new guided reading. They uh, didn't know the power in building vocabulary. And I spent that residency really building up their skills and just diving into it and, and having um, book talks and writers workshop. And so when I had the opportunity to acquire the middle school, I'll never forget the day I got the job. Um, I was told by the leaders in the, in that district um, who happened to be white. They gave me my test scores. And I remember opening up the folder and I, and the first thing I saw, like, it was like 
beaming out like light that the seventh and eighth graders in that school had reached a proficiency rate in math at 18%. Right. Like people can't see the look on your face, but I want you to recognize. And there were were over 900 students in the school. 18% were proficient in math. 23% were proficient in ELA. And they were only in the school for seventh and eighth grade. So that should tell you how they were coming in and how they were exiting. Right. And I remember looking at the scores and just like kind of falling back because I knew it was a turnaround school. Right. So, of course, they were struggling with academics. Uh, But to look at the scores and see that like students were barely comprehending what was being put in front of them on grade level, that students were forget struggling with fluency, like were just just disfluent. And um, and I and I remember uh, slouching back in my chair and the leaders kind of chuckling and saying, we just want you to get in there and get the murder rate down. Mm. And, and this feeling like a brick, like I've been hit overhead with a brick when they said that. I, I was angry. And at the same time, like they just given me the job, right? So I couldn't go off on them. But I remember thinking like, oh my God, they are chuckling to themselves. We just want you to get in there and get the murder rate down no one is saying anything about the proficiency and the illiteracy that was happening in the building. And so I just remember that first year feeling going in and almost having to fight daily this feeling of defeat because I knew that we could change stuff. I could bring in a whole new staff. It didn't matter how much money they gave me and my budget. At the end of the day, I knew that I was inheriting at the very least eighth graders that were going to graduate out of the middle school with major disfluency, barely reading on a fourth grade level. And so, you know, I use that to fuel me but I would be lying if I didn't say there were days that I coined this phrase that first year. This, this is why you hear me say this all the time. Uh, there were days that I was throwing peas at a dragon. Mm. It felt like they had given me a bag of frozen peas and told me to go into the school to slay the dragon. You, you said a lot of important things. It brought me back to uh, episode one of the podcast and how I was talking myself about like in terms of like being the, the pea thrower versus the dragon. And sometimes I had to fight not being the dragon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, and you, and you really captured that, uh, that, that wrestle. Um, cause now, cause I'm thinking about the, the, the content of this episode where segregation was, rampant and it made horrible impacts on the quality of resources and 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 whatnot uh for for folks of all color actually but and there was still like this networking and intentionality of instruction that was happening within these communities of color despite all of that mm-hmm. in segregation 2.0 because we'll talk about that in later episodes of the podcast like post brown versus board in segregation 
Do you believe, how about this? Do you believe that you would have been just as tempted to have the, the dragon behaviors in uh, segregation 1.0 mm. as you would or as we would in 2.0? No, because, you know, there, so there is this feeling of community, of ownership, of it's our community and we are just as invested. See, what I believe happens in most communities like the community I serve is that if we're not careful, what looks like is a support, what looks like is a leg up is actually a foot down. And we become reliant on systems because we're told that without these systems, we can't succeed. Now, let's be real. Yes, there are systems that are out there that we have in our neighborhoods that are meant to support those who need support. But if you look at the very conditions that you have to enter into and you have to stay in in order for those systems to be utilized, you begin to see that this system is not a step up. It's actually a foot down. And I'm not saying that to eliminate them. I'm saying that it plays a role in the mentality that we have. What I know for sure is in that segregation one, we were still coming out of a notion that we were a community and that by force, right? We had no other object but to band together, you know, that there was ownership. And there was a sense of, you got to do good so we all can do good. What I now know is that time and decades of communities having to circle in those systems that, let's be real, play a role in the oppression, that after a while, if your whole entire community is immersed in that system, who's fighting to push against it? You don't even realize that you're in it, right? So the system turns you as a leader into the dragon, sometimes without you even noticing it. And if you're not careful or if you're not conscious, you don't push yourself to rise above it, all you end up doing is perpetuating that system in the name of I'm trying to make things better for these kids who, by the way, I associate myself with, who I look like, who I share the same background. You've brought up twice now, at least twice, this idea of, or this experience of having to do this dance of not becoming this dragon while you're shooting the peas, while trying to find other better, you know, weapons, while again, trying not to become the dragon. But you mentioned twice that there's often been a mentor or a person that's helped you kind of recontextualize the view and, and try to reset into your original purposes and intentions as an educator, as an educated woman of color, as an educated woman of color who values literacy. Who, the last question will be, who is your favorite educator in person? And then who is your favorite educator in print? 
mm. that you may not have met, but like you know, you read their stuff and like you know what, like yeah, that's that's my that's my that's yeah that's that's my guy post. <laughs> well, my favorite. Oh man, I have so many. My favorite educator in person, um, man, because I, I feel like if I say this person, I have to say the other person. Uh, all right. My favorite educator in person um, was my father. Mm-hmm. My father was brilliant. I mean, I don't believe in the science of geniuses, but was often told it as that. Came from a family of 11 they lived in a condemned house. I mean, they, to struggle in poverty is not even, doesn't even say it. And, and yet he gravitated towards knowledge and intelligence and creativity and just pressed upon my sister and I that um, the mind is just this incredible thing. And literally he would say to us, And not in a cliche way, like literally, if you put your mind to something, you will be able to do it. And putting your mind to something comes in different modalities, right? It could be studying it. It could be delving into it. It could be experimenting in it. And he constantly pushed the grain around that with my sister and I. And so the love of knowledge and learning and teaching and and, uh, that a lot of that comes from him. But I must say that most of it, the supporting of it, the pushing us through school came from my mother, right? The person in print, I will tell you, hands down, uh, believe it or not, is Toni Morrison. Because Toni Morrison, you know, other than discovering her writing of fiction that blew my mind, like it's, when I think about her as a writer, there are not many more, maybe Wally Lamb, maybe one other person who can write in a way I mean, the Song of Solomon alone, that book, the, the, the main character was a man. And you, I, I remember having to keep glancing at the photograph in the back of the book to be like, a woman wrote this? The fact that she morphed herself anyway. Mm-hmm. But what she says outside of fiction about racism, about race, about what white privilege does, not just to the white person, but to the person of color, who gets indoctrinated into chasing it. She has been my teacher. Um, And ironically or not, her along with the current mentor I had, that mentor I had at that time when I was a middle school turnaround principal, were the reason why I cowardly, and I'm gonna say this, cowardly, but also audaciously quit the job because by the end of my second year, I began to realize through that mentor, through going back and looking at Toni Morrison's writing that, um, that I had become the system. And the more I tried to climb out of that, the more I got pressure from my colleagues, from my supervisors, from the system to, to not to get back down on the lower inferences of the ladder and to assume the position as the person, as the system. And it came a point where I was asked to essentially hold back about 
26 African-American males who were in eighth grade who decided their last semester that they were not going to complete any work from their ELA teacher because, let's be honest, they had a horrible relationship with the teacher. And based off of that one piece of them as a student, not their standardized test scores, not their unit scores, not even their most recent scores, the teacher in one push of a pen failed all of the students. And she failed them. She put in their failing marks the last day of school so that there was no choice but for them to receive a letter saying that if you want to go on to the ninth grade, you have to go to summer school. And in order to go to summer school, you have to pay. And if you can't afford summer school, we will see you back in eighth grade again. And I remember finding out about it and I went into the system and overrid it. And I passed all of them. And probably within 48 hours, I started getting phone calls from the surrounding principals who were like, I don't want, what do you mean? These kids are supposed to fail and now you're passing them to their supervisor, to my supervisor. And I remember going home, opening up a folder I had of Toni Morrison's writings and reading this. Can I read it? Of course. You all have heard me say this before, but this is why it reaches out to me. The first sheet of paper that fell out was her quote that says, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly. So you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. And I read that quote. And I just broke down in tears because I knew this was one more thing. And so I passed those kids. I locked it into the computer. I picked up the phone, called my boss, and I quit. Woo! <laughs> Lacey, thank you very much for being just open and vulnerable and, and honest. It's not easy um, being an educator at all, let alone one that, um, you know, is, is of color in this country, let alone one that um, is aware of what that means in this country, because you have a lot of things to navigate, a lot of dragons to slay, a lot of peas to, <laughs> to shoot, um, and a lot of effective weapons to find. Um, and we all don't share the, that that story with that with such transparency. So. Thank you very much uh, for sharing. And you also provided a lot of good insight for what's to come in this podcast in terms of the, the, the struggles that we have to navigate post-Brown versus board. Yeah. And, and, and some of the things that we can revisit. Because even in the fact that this whole conversation was woven through one metaphor and one saying, right, um, 
was, was just such an example of how uh, folks can use their own indigenous ways of being and learning and thinking to really have deep thoughts about the things that are relevant to them, i.e. the peas versus the dragon, right? So um, thank you so much again, because um, you know, we know you got work to do <laughs> and, and, you, and you took time out uh, to, to, to do this. So for those who have been listening, um, you are listening to the B side of the complexion of teaching and learning, uh, one-to-one conversations uh, with educators of color, discussing their experiences, their contributions, their reflections, and their challenges. Um, this is brought to you by Unbounded, where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work grounded and our learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, standards. If you want to check out more of what we have to offer, please visit unbounded.org or standardsinstitutes.org. We will see you in the next episode of the Complexion of Teaching and Learning. Peace and progress.